0: So, what do you write? This is a question you will be asked countless times during your writing career. Writers who have a compelling answer to this question get more contracts, bigger advances, more readers, and sell more books. This compelling answer is called a pitch, and indie authors also benefit from having a compelling pitch, their books. While it may not help them get a contract because they don't need one, a good pitch leads to a compelling back cover copy, more attention-grabbing ads, and of course, word of mouth. Better word of mouth begins with you. The better your pitch, the more word will spread from person to person. So how do you craft a pitch for your book that creates a word of mouth wildfire? Well, that is exactly what we're talking about on this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm your host, CEO of Author Media, Thomas Umstead, Jr., and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. And if you want people to talk about your writing, you've got to learn how to talk about your writing yourself. (laughs) So, before we talk about how to craft a compelling pitch, I want to talk about when to write your pitch. In my experience, most authors, especially beginning authors, craft their pitch at the wrong time. This is why it pays to be listeners of the Novel Marketing Podcast, because you're about to learn an easy lesson that a lot of authors learn the hard way. I recommend writing your pitch for your book before you write the book. In screenwriting, this is called writing the poster first. In online sales, this is called creating the landing page first. In business, it's called beginning with the end in mind. And crafting your pitch before you write the book has several benefits. The first is loving your reader. The first book marketing commitment is to love thy reader as much as you love thy book. Crafting a pitch forces you to think about your reader. And the sooner you start thinking about your reader, the better your book will be. Another advantage is that it's planning to succeed. Crafting the pitch first forces you to think through the big picture of the book ahead of time. This is particularly helpful for authors who write by the seat of their pants. The book's pitch acts as a puzzle box, helping you craft your story, helping you know where to put the puzzle pieces, helping you know if you're heading in the right direction or not. And perhaps most importantly, crafting your pitch ahead of time helps you test your ideas. It can be hard to get feedback on your writing. It takes a big commitment for someone to read your manuscript. And the kind of people who are willing to read your manuscript for free may be unwilling or unable to give you the kind of feedback you need to fix what needs fixing or to even know what needs fixing. But a pitch, a pitch you can practice on anyone. Anytime someone asks you what you do and you respond, I'm a writer, people will typically, in in my experience, almost always follow up with, well, what do you write? Then you give them your pitch. And as you share your pitch, you watch their face for clues on if they are interested and you listen for if they ask follow-up questions. And part of the pitch is shutting up at the end and listening for what questions they ask. If there are no further questions, your pitch and thus your story may need some work. Find that out before you spend a year Typing sentences. And as you write your book and as things change, because things always change as you write your story, you can adapt your pitch, keep practicing it and hone it and getting that reader feedback the whole time. Uh, Another advantage of crafting your pitch before you write your book is that it saves you time. Each year, I host a special pitch practice for people going to the Realm Makers Conference. And this is a special webinar where people come on, they give their pitch to me live on the air, and I give them public feedback (laughs) live on the air. And it's not uncommon for major story problems to emerge that send writers back to the drawing board or back revising elements of their story. And this can be discouraging right before a conference. So don't wait right before the conference to put your pitch together. Practice and hone your pitch while your book is still in its embryonic stages. This will give you the time you need to help your book grow in the right direction. The best time to work on your pitch is before you start writing a book. But the second best time to work on your pitch is right now. So with that said, let's talk about how to craft a pitch. Now, good pitches answer the most important question. So what is the most important question? It is, why should I read this book? You never have very much time to answer this question. You've got to start getting people curious very quickly. Trying to give a long answer to the question, what do you write, is like trying to throw a basketball from the baseball pitcher's mount. The bigger the ball, the harder it is to throw. So your pitch must be short to work. How do you have a short pitch? You focus on the most compelling element of a book. That sounds easy, but it's not. Why? Because if your book is well-written, there are many compelling elements. The better of a writer you are, the more compelling elements your book will have, and the harder it is to find the most compelling element. Now, I want to reiterate here that book pitches are not book reports. In school, you probably wrote a lot of book reports. And the purpose of a book report was not to teach you good writing. It was to demonstrate that you had read the whole book. So a book report, by definition, had to cover everything about the book. The purpose of a pitch, on the other hand, is to get someone curious. You want to give them a sickness of curiosity that the only prescription is more cowbell. I mean, reading the book. So the more you tell someone about your book, the less curious they tend to become. So don't spoil your own book in the pitch. This is common sense, and it's why you're not tempted to give away the murderer in the pitch for your mystery novel. And yet, I see a lot of authors who give away second act plot points in their pitch. I often don't really start enjoying a book or a movie for that matter until I've read past the part of the book I read in the back cover copy or heard in the pitch or saw in the trailer. So, as a general rule, don't give away plot points after either your inciting moment or the fateful decision moment. Or, in other words, don't go beyond act one in your pitch. If you can't make your book interesting, By just talking about elements in Act 1, you need to rewrite Act (laughs) 1. Really, you need to grab somebody from the very first page of your book, but you can't wait until halfway through your book to get it interesting. You need to lead with that most interesting element. So how do you find this most compelling aspect of your book? Well, like I said, it can be a little bit hard, but I'm about to give you some places to look, and I have a worksheet, a downloadable, printable worksheet that goes along with this episode. You can find it at authormedia.com forward slash 285 for episode 285, or just go to authormedia.com and do a search for pitch, (laughs) or book pitches. Uh, There's a big search bar at the top of authormedia.com, and you can find all our show notes there. And this worksheet will walk you through what I'm about to share with you in terms of where to look to find your most compelling element. So let's start with the plot pitch. This is the first place to start looking for your most compelling element. And it's in some ways the easiest place to look for the most interesting thing about your book. Specifically, you want to look in these elements of your plot. The first is desire. What does your protagonist want more than anything else? Why does your protagonist want that thing? And how does your protagonist's desires change at the fateful decision moment, right? When does Luke Skywalker uh, no longer want to go to Hitashi Station, but instead wants to go and save the princess? At what moment does Katniss Everdeen volunteer as tribute or when Bilbo Baggins decides to join the dwarves on their quest? this big decision that the protagonist makes that moves the story forward and often triggers act two, this is often a really interesting place. And it's often right around this moment of decision that a lot of the back cover copy or a lot of the pitch comes from. So what is that big decision and how do the desires of your protagonist change? So that's desire. The second element of plot is stakes, right? Why is it important that your protagonist get that desire, right? If Katniss Everdeen doesn't win the Hunger Games, she will die, right? Those really high stakes. What will happen if the protagonist fails to get that desire, right? So what's the good thing that happens if they get their desire? What is the bad thing that happens if they fail to get their desire? Depending on your story and depending on how you structured it, It may be that your protagonist is running towards a good thing or running away from a bad thing or maybe both, right? So these questions are really helpful. And then another question is who suffers from the protagonist's failure, Sometimes your main character suffers when they fail to get their desire, but sometimes it's their family who suffers or their country who suffers or the world or the galaxy, right? There's a lot of potential suffering that could happen if your protagonist is a failure, right? If Frodo fails to throw the ring into uh, Mount Doom, all the world will be covered in a second darkness. Now, the stakes are often why the reader cares about the protagonist's burning desire. The stakes don't always have to be the end of the world. In fact, they probably shouldn't be for some genres. You know, it's a temptation to always have a skybeam at the end of your movie and the whole world is at stake. But often it's something more real, more close to earth, that greater resonate with the reader. And so explore that. Don't feel like it has to be high stakes in the sense of millions of people will die. Sometimes seeing the love of your life marry the wrong person is stakes enough, right? Nobody's dying. They're just marrying the wrong person and and you can't let that happen, right? There's a lot of ways to play with stakes and you want stakes that matter to your target reader. And now the third element of plot where you may find your most compelling element or the flavoring for it at any rate is urgency. So we have desire, stakes, and urgency. What bad thing happens if your protagonist is too late? Or why does the protagonist need that desire now? Why not wait a year? Why not wait a day? Agency is the go-to tool for thrillers. Now, not all books have a lot of urgency, and that's okay. You know, if if that doesn't fit for your genre, this is probably not where you're going to find your most compelling element. This is a way of signaling where on the relaxing slash exciting continuum books are right some readers are wanting a relaxing read some readers are wanting an exciting read and how much urgency there is how much of a ticking clock there is signals hey this is going to be an exciting read this is going to be a relaxing read so that is plot and for certain genres they most commonly pull their most compelling element for the pitch from the plot but plot is not the only place to find your most compelling element the second place to look is your characters Perhaps the most compelling element is not what happens in your book, but rather who your book is about. Typically, if your most compelling element is one of your characters, it will be one of the following three characters. The first is your protagonist, this is usually your point of view character, but not always. It's usually the hero, but not always. In Avengers Affinity War, the protagonist of the story is Thanos. He's the bad guy. He's the one making the decisions to move the story forward, which is why him getting what he wants at the end of the movie and killing half of the people on Earth is a satisfying ending because the protagonist got what he wanted, even though what he wanted was a terrible thing. The protagonist is the one who's making decisions that drive the story forward. Uh, So who is making the decisions to push your story forward? How does the protagonist change while striving for that desire? What makes your protagonist interesting? What makes your protagonist different? And then, of course, what makes your protagonist relatable? Your answers to these questions. And again, I hope you're going through the worksheet, or I hope you print out the worksheet at authormedia.com forward slash 285 if you really want to do this, because doing the work alongside will help you. Uh, But if you're answering these questions, some of your answers be like, oh, that's really interesting (laughs) Uh, because it's forcing you to kind of talk about your story rather than to tell your story. And that little bit of perspective often will make your most interesting element jump right out. You know, like I didn't realize my protagonist was interesting in this way or that they were relatable in this way or that they were different in this way. Or I didn't realize the bad guy was the protagonist of my movie (laughs) or the good guy isn't. So Mary Poppins, The protagonist of the movie is actually Mr. Banks, and Mary Poppins is the antagonist. (laughs) Uh, She has an unhappy ending, and the movie still is satisfying in the end. Which is very fascinating how they play with that because it's Mr. Banks who goes through the transformation. And it's also why you don't hate Mary Poppins for being a Mary Sue, right? She's practically perfect in every way, but it doesn't bother you because she's the antagonist. If <laughs> she was the protagonist, you would come to hate her as an overpowered, too perfect character. All right, so that's the protagonist. I imagine you're already pretty familiar with protagonists. You're probably pretty familiar with your protagonist. The next character to look at It's what's known as the relationship character or dynamic character. The relationship character is the person who's on the journey of transformation alongside the protagonist. Sometimes it's a mentor like Obi-Wan. Sometimes as a companion like Samwise Ganji. And sometimes it's someone else. Uh, Often it's to the relationship character or from the relationship character that the message or theme of the story is expressed. So who is joining your protagonist on the journey of transformation. Now, you may have a bunch of characters who are surrounding your protagonist, and only one of them, hopefully, is a relationship character. Hopefully, your book only has one theme. Now, some books are really complicated, and there's a lot of flexibility in this. I'm kind of basing some of this off of the Hollywood formula, and I'll have a link to the Hollywood formula episode on writing excuses for those of you who are not familiar with that. But In general, you only want to have one relationship character. You only have one main mentor. So sometimes that relationship character is what really kind of sets the story. So one question to kind of look to see if your relationship character is the one that's your most compelling element is the question, how does the protagonist change as a result of his or her relationship with the relationship character? I will say this is a very uncommon place to find your most interesting Element. But doing the work and answering these questions may help you understand your story in a better way that still may help you find your most interesting element somewhere else. Now, warning, warning, it's a bad idea to put more than three names in a pitch. In fact, usually two names is sufficient. You just need one character and the other character. Because remember, this is not a book report. You're not summarizing the whole book, you're not describing every ingredient in the dish. You're only describing the most interesting ingredients in the dish. You're talking about the steak and you're talking about the sizzle and maybe you're talking about the mashed potatoes, but you're not talking about the salt. <laughs> you're not talking about the fire that you to cook the steak and so on. So if you have too many characters or if you have too long of a pitch, the relationship character is typically the first to get cut from your pitch. So we've talked about the protagonist and the relationship character. Now let's talk about the antagonist. The antagonist is the person or being or element that puts obstacles in the way of your protagonist from getting their desire. So who or what is preventing the protagonist from getting their desire? What does your antagonist want? Right? Sometimes the antagonist just purely wants the protagonist to fail, but sometimes they have different desires that are like pulling in opposite directions or sometimes in the s- just slightly different directions, and that's where... The conflict comes from sometimes the antagonist doesn't even know or care who the protagonist is right it's a a tsunami that's bearing down on the town the antagonist doesn't care about the protagonist the tsunami doesn't care that if the protagonist doesn't get his family out of the town in time his whole family will die right They, they, they don't care or maybe it's a terrorist who's specifically trying to hunt his family out of revenge right there's a lot of ways that you can play with this in your story how do the antagonist's desires cause the antagonist to put obstacles in the way of your protagonist? And then finally, what does the antagonist do to keep the protagonist from getting what they want? So these questions will help you kind of understand your antagonist better. Often, it's the protagonist and the antagonist. it's the relationship between them, the conflicting desires that make up for a really cool, compelling element of your story. And identifying who your antagonist is, often as you answer these questions, that most critical element will pop up at you. Now, when it comes to antagonists, and we're going to switch here to the third element. We've talked about plot. We've talked about character. Now we're going to talk about conflict. So we're going to zoom in on this protagonist-antagonist relationship a little bit because there's a whole world of conflict, and there's different kinds of conflict. Now, your story, hopefully, has multiple kinds of conflict, right? You have lots of different conflict, with lots of different people. Every scene has conflict. But typically, you're going to have one kind of overarching conflict that drives the story. If you don't, your story can be a little bit cumbersome. and It's definitely hard to explain to readers. So you want to have one kind of primary conflict in most cases. And there are six different types of conflict that basically all stories have. These are not categories I came up with. These are categories that go back thousands of years, and once you understand them, I think it may help you find your most compelling element. So the first one is protagonist against man, or as they used to say, man against man. So from Cain versus Abel to Iron Man versus Captain America, this is perhaps the most common conflict in literature. It's between two humans, or it's between a human and an alien of similar power, right? So Star Trek, in general, is man-against-man conflicts. Even when they're dealing with alien races, the Klingons are only a little bit more powerful or a little bit less powerful than the Federation, just as if they were just a different nation of humans. And I'm not going to talk too much about this conflict because you already understand it. You've seen it in a thousand movies. You read it in a thousand books. The second conflict is protagonist against himself or man against himself. And this is a really special conflict because it's almost impossible to do this well on screen. It's really hard to show man against himself on screen because a lot of it happens inside the mind of the protagonist. So a woman is trying to do something and she's setting her own obstacles in front of her. There's a lot of room for conflict, right? If you've ever tried to change a habit, lose weight, or kick an addiction, you can relate to being your own worst enemy. And that conflict happens in your head. And you can't show that conflict on screen, but you can explore it in a book. And of the six conflicts, I think this one is the most relatable. It's the least exotic and most relatable because we all know what it's like to try to do something, and yet we get in our own way. The things I want to do, I do not do, right? Even in the Bible, this conflict of someone in conflict with themselves, it's a fascinating challenge. And most stories have this a little bit as like a side seasoning, but some stories have it as the core conceit. And some of them make it really like clear, right? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is arguably a man against himself as the big plot and makes it very obvious. In fact, that would be the way, if you wanted to do it on screen, that's how you do it for a film, right? You'd have a a physical expression of the evil side of a man, right? He's Bruce Banner when he's good, and he's the Hulk when he's evil, right? That man against himself. You kind of have to go to that extreme for film, but you don't have to for a story, right? Somebody's trying to quit smoking, right? They don't turn into a monster while they're trying to quit smoking or or while they're smoking a cigarette. Although maybe they do in your world, right? (laughs) And they turn into a werewolf and they're smoking. And that's what makes it interesting. I I love how there's a lot of freedom with this. And I'm not here to tell you how to write your story. The the whole purpose of going through these conflicts is to find the most compelling element to get people excited to learn more about your story. All right. So we talked about protagonist against man, protagonist against himself. Now let's talk about protagonist against nature. This is the man against nature plot that I suspect is gonna be on the rise in coming years. There's more fear of nature than there has been in the last hundred years. We conquered nature, supposedly, and it turns out we were wrong. <laughs> nature is conquering his back. Whether it's weather events or viruses, nature is not down for the count. And I suspect this will become a more relatable conflict moving forward. So there's a lot of room here. So from weather to beasts to pandemics, nature can get in the way of your protagonist. And what makes nature an interesting antagonist is that it can't be reasoned with. You can't talk to a tsunami. You can't give arguments to a bear. Nature forces the protagonist to confront it through primarily physical means. The protagonist can't reason with a wolf, but he can punch it in the face (laughs) or run away from it or hide from it or many other things. Nature has a fascinating lack of malice. Right, so the wolf doesn't hate you while it's eating you, it's just hungry, and yet you're just as dead as if the evil assassin had hunted you down. A volcano has no malice towards the town it's about to destroy, uh, but likewise, it has no mercy in killing all of the inhabitants. And nature is a fascinating antagonist, and one that you see a lot more in the older stories. If you go back more than 100 years, and if you especially you go back to the really old stories, nature is the primary antagonist, right? It's the big bad wolf that lurks in the forest that's always hunting the fairy tale protagonists. And there's a reason for that. So I'd love to see some more protagonist against nature plots or at least flavorings of it. Uh, But again, you write your own story. And if this is what your story is about, maybe put it in your pitch. (laughs) Uh, So we talked about uh, protagonist against nature now on the total other side of that coin is protagonist against society. While you cannot reason with a wolf with society, sometimes that's the only thing you can do, right? What happens when someone comes in conflict with the society around them? This could be someone facing off against a religion, a crowd, a government, a community. There's lots of ways to come in conflict with society. Everyone's trying to make you wear a mask and you don't wanna wear a mask. What does that look like? Or everyone around you is not wearing a mask and you're the one person Wearing a mask. What does that look like? Not that there's any man against conflict or uh, man against society conflicts today, or woman against society conflicts today. So, what makes this conflict interesting is that the protagonist is always outnumbered, and is often battling against ideas rather than the people themselves. But often, also with the people <laughs> themselves. But you can't punch an idea, so it's it's like the opposite of nature, right? And while nature, you're grappling with it with primarily physical means and the sword is mightier than the pen when you're fighting a wolf. The pen is mightier than the sword when fighting with society. I would love to see a story actually that has both of these conflicts in them (laughs) because they're so different and uh, setting a man against society in the context of a man against nature is really interesting. Probably why I like post-apocalyptic stories so much, come to think of it, because those often are this context, right? You have nature, it's got radiation and the world outside is very dangerous because of the apocalypse. And yet the people who are trying to work together are often in conflict with each other. So just just had that aha moment (laughs) just now. Uh, I love talking about these different kinds of conflicts. Okay. So from man against society or protagonist against society, Sorry, I I realize not all protagonists are men, but the way I learned these as a kid was man against man, man against society, Uh, so it's still kind of stuck in my head. All right, so the next one is protagonist against the supernatural, or what used to be called uh, man against God, Uh, but it's really more than just man against God. So, what happens when the antagonist opposing the protagonist is unimaginably more powerful? What makes this conflict interesting is the asymmetry of power how does one challenge a god how do you survive an attack from a vampire or a superior alien race so when i talk about star trek earlier and how it's normally man against man plots it's not that way when they're interacting with q so q is this godlike character in the star trek universe who they can't fight they can't hurt and they have to manage him somehow (laughs) and he's he's kind of this trickster god he's kind of like this loki He's, he's not technically a god he's um He's an alien, but he's so powerful that he he's very godlike. And you may think that, you know, as we talk about these different conflicts, that this would be the most exotic of the conflicts, but it's actually not. We're about to get to the most exotic conflict. Facing off against someone who is unimaginably more powerful than you is something that we all experienced. As children, right? Adults have immeasurably more power than children do. They're bigger, faster, smarter, and on and on. And I suspect this is why man against the supernatural is such a popular conflict in YA. Right? It's easy for an angsty teen to relate to a vampire hunter who fights against powerful vampires. In fact, it may be easier for that angsty teen to relate to that vampire hunter than his CEO dad, who feels very powerful, right? And that very powerful dad may relate more to a man-against-society conflict, right? Because he feels powerful in his corporation, and yet the corporation is more powerful than he is collectively, right? Bringing change in a society is very hard. So that's a protagonist against the supernatural. And finally, we have our sixth conflict, which is protagonist against his own creation. So what happens when someone creates their own antagonist? This conflict has expanded from the familial and dynastic conflicts of old to Frankenstein's monster in HAL 9000. Of the conflicts, this is the least relatable and the most exotic. Most people have no idea what it is like to have a prodigal son or to create a monster. And this is why it's perhaps the rarest of conflicts in literature, but it's also the most exotic. So it's the hardest to relate to, but it's the most exotic. And that is either a feature or a bug, depending on who you're trying to target. But if this is your primary conflict is protagonist against her own creation, it's likely going to be your most interesting element, right? If if you have Frankenstein and he's created a monster, there's likely no other element of that story that's going to be as interesting as that. Maybe, maybe, but I doubt it. So we've covered plot, we've covered character, and we've covered conflict. Now there's one last place to look when it comes to finding the most compelling element of your story to feature in your pitch and that is your setting. (laughs) Yes, if you know anything about uh, writing theory, you knew this was coming. And sometimes the most interesting thing about your story is not the who or even the what, but the where. This kind of pitch is most common in genres with lots of world building, like fantasy and science fiction, but it's not limited to that. The core answer to this pitch is, why would I want to spend time in your story world? These kinds of stories that really focus on setting tend to be very long because people want to spend a lot of time in that world, in, that, in space or in, with the elves and the dragons. But it doesn't have to be same fantasy or science fiction. So part of the fun of a James Bond story is getting to visit exotic places all over the world and not just visiting them. You're not visiting them as a tourist. You're visiting them as a powerful secret agent. When James Bond visits Rome, he does it in a very different way, and he visits very different parts of Rome than you would as a camera-wielding tourist, and that's very fun. That's a fun setting to go along with. There's a reason why every act of a James Bond movie takes place on a different continent, because that's part of the appeal. You're getting to go on vacation when you watch a James Bond film, and similarly, you can take your readers on a vacation. (laughs) You can take them to an exotic place. This is a great opportunity to give your book some realism and to help to use that realism to sell their book. And, and I will say, maybe uh, you're like James L. Rubach, and his books are set in the Pacific Northwest. The Pacific Northwest is popular, but it's not Hawaii. It's not like a go to, you know, world famous tourist destination. But people in the Pacific Northwest love the Pacific Northwest. And so when he's pitching his book, in the Pacific Northwest, he makes a big deal about the setting. He'll sell his book at tourist places, you know, like tchotchke shops will sell his book because it's like, hey, this book takes place in this same town. When he sells his book outside of the Pacific Northwest, he doesn't make as much of a focus on the setting because in the rest of the world, there are other elements of the story that are more interesting than the setting. And when you set your book in a real place, in a real town, Oftentimes, at least for people in that town, especially if it's a small town, you, in some ways you get a bonus way to sell it and a the, the local craft beer for that town, uh, but the literary book instead. And so, so keep this in mind, the, the, when you're pitching your setting, it doesn't have to be space. It could just be small town Alaska or, or uh, maybe some neighborhood in Chicago, right? From what I understand, the Harry Dresden books are very popular in Chicago specifically because so many of the elements take place in and around Chicago. So people in Chicago love the books for that reason, whereas I don't have strong feelings about Chicago one way or the other, and yet I still enjoy the books for other reasons. So here's some questions to help you tease out your setting. How is your book setting different from the real world? So if your setting is, you know, but with aliens or but with dragons, you know, maybe that's going to be your most interesting element. Another question is what makes the setting interesting? Why is the Pacific Northwest beautiful or interesting? A lot of people don't know anything about the Pacific Northwest. So if you're really going to sell on the setting to them, you're going to have to explain it. As people who are there, they get it. They like it. (laughs) They realize the rain is not what you think. Why would this place be fun to visit? And this can be fun to write about. And this can help you see really interesting elements of your book and to help you find that most compelling component. All right. So we've talked about the different ingredients and now let's talk about putting it all together. And once you've gone through the worksheet, which again, you can get for free at authormedia.com forward slash 285, it'll email you a, I'll, I'll make it a word document so you can fill it out on your computer or you can print it out. So once you go through the worksheet, you're going to have a, basically a pantry full of ingredients or a refrigerator full of ingredients. So now it's time to do some cooking, put it all together. So I want you to put together a pitch for your story that focuses on your most interesting character, or perhaps that focuses on the conflict between your protagonist and your antagonist. Then I want you to write a second pitch that focuses on the plot and so on. And so as you create different pitches, what you're going to see is that it helps you see your story in a different light. And some of those pitches, you know, you'll put together a setting pitch and you're like, it takes place in New York City. A million books take place in New York City. That's not a very interesting setting, right? So maybe you're like, okay, I'm not going to use this pitch. But writing it forces you to think through it. And hopefully what will happen is as you're writing these different pitches, you're getting an idea for which ones are the most compelling. And here's the good news. You don't have to pick a winner. I just want you to get it down to two or maybe three pitches that you've written covering your book. And then the next time someone asks you, what do you write? Try one of the pitches and see if it works or if it doesn't. This is the beauty of having your pitch. You get to find out what the most interesting element of your book is. And if you're doing this while you're still writing your book and you're trying different pitches and you realize people are really getting excited about your setting, like, well, huh, maybe I should explore the setting more. In the story, or you see that people are really getting interested in your uh, relationship character, your dynamic character. So you're like, well, maybe I need to develop that character a little bit more in the story. It helps it reflect on itself and guides you as you write your book, if you get it in time. <laughs> but even if your book is finished, even if your book is already for sale, knowing how best to present it to people really makes a difference in how many sales you get. And the more you share your pitch to people face to face, the more you'll learn which pitch works best. But you'll also start to learn that different pitches work for different kinds of people. If you live in the Pacific Northwest in a small town and your book takes place in that small town, maybe when you pitch to somebody else in the small town, that's what you lead with. Whereas if you're in the airport on the other side of the country, you lead with a conflict between your protagonist, and your antagonist, right? Having different bait to fit the fish becomes really powerful as you learn how to articulate your book. And it's not just for one-on-one word of mouth, right? It's also for when you're doing a podcast interview or if you're doing a radio show, right? If you're on a local radio show in the Pacific Northwest, talk about the setting. If you're doing a local radio show in Russia and they are vaguely aware of where California and Texas are in the United States, but they don't couldn't find Oregon on a map because they're from Russia, <laughs> maybe don't lead with that. <laughs> so it'll really help you be more equipped to talk about your book in a way that gets people excited about your book. And you know you have got a great pitch when the question that they ask you when you're done telling them about your book is, so where can I buy your book? <laughs> That's when you've got it. And that is a great feeling when they pull out their phone and buy your book right there in front of you. Our sponsor today is The Five-Year Plan to Becoming a Best-Selling Author. If you're wanting help on becoming a better writer from me and from Christie Hall of Fame author James L. Rubart, The Five-Year Plan gives you a step-by-step guide through the first five years of your career. This course will save you five years of doing things the hard way. So most authors, it takes them 10 years to find success in publishing easily, 10 years. But with a five-year plan, you can do it in five. We're not promising quick success, but we are promising quicker success by learning from our mistakes and learning from the lessons we've learned the hard way. You learn each quarter what to do, what to focus on, and what you don't need to focus on. So it actually helps reduce your stress as you work on the right things in the right way. And I will say, this course is primarily focused on craft. It's the only craft-centric course we have at Author Media. If you're wanting to become a better writer, which really is the most important thing when it comes to marketing, is writing a good book, uh, this is the course to get. And you can find out more at authormedia.com forward slash courses. And if you're a patron of the podcast, you can save 50% off the cost of the course. So it more than pays for itself to sign up as a patron. So you're supporting the show and you're saving yourself a lot of money. Speaking of patrons... Our featured patron is C.L.R. Peterson, author of Lucia's Renaissance. Heresy is fatal in late Renaissance Italy, so only a suicidal zealot would so much as whisper the name of Martin Luther. But after Luther's ideas ignite a young girl's faith, she must choose, abandon her beliefs, or risk her life in the turbulent world of late 16th century Italy. So, C.L.R. Peterson, thank you so much for being a patron of the podcast. Thank you for supporting the show, helping keep us on the air. I really appreciate it. These episodes, especially these solo episodes, are a lot of work. And I wouldn't be able to take the time to do this and put together a worksheet that's free for all the listeners if it wasn't for the handful of you who support the show on Patreon. And if you can't afford to become a patron but you still want to help the show, there's an easy way to do that. Just share this episode with one writer friend. You think it would find it helpful. Or just tell somebody, hey, I know you write books. Have you checked out novel marketing? That really helps. It's the word of mouth that helps drive the listeners of this show. You've been listening to Thomas Umstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media on the Novel Marketing Podcast. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstead, and the blog post version was edited by Shauna Letellier. To find the blog version or to get new episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit authormedia.com. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.